Welcome back. While we are gathering and while you are turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, I want to mention some things to you. I don't know where you go for, for Christian news or for biblical news. I know it's not any of the channels on your TV. Um, I want to give you some names of people that you might want to follow on either social media or go to their websites or just Google them. These are people who are in the know biblically with what's happening prophetically, uh, globally, socioeconomically. Uh, so you might want to jot these names down. <clears throat> One of them is Joel Rosenberg. Uh, he's a Messianic Jew, born and raised in um, the United States, from New York actually, but he uh, now resides in Israel, his dual citizenship. Joel Rosenberg, <clears throat> he has some recent uh, podcasts and publications on what is happening and how might we look at the things that are going on. Another one, Amir, A-M-I-R, Amir Safardi, T-S-F-A-R-T-I, strange name, Amir Safardi. He's also Messianic Jew. He lives in Israel and is very connected with what's happening globally. Uh, He was a former, if I have this right, sort of the akin of either CIA or Secret Service in Israel. So he's very connected. He finds out things. He calls people. People share things with him. He's got like, you know, secret sources. So uh, he's a great resource, uh, Mir Safardi. Uh, Barry Stagner, spell it just like it sounds, is a a pastor in California who is uh, very connected with what's happening. He's sort of a prophecy buff. Uh, Jack Hibbs, I know some of you know who he is. Uh, He's great to, to follow him. And then I had one more in my mind, and I think it just disappeared. Um, so that, that should be plenty to keep you going. But if you want to just kind of have an understanding of what's happening uh, in this whole move with what's happening with Russia, with Ukraine, uh, you know, could this be setting up, as I mentioned earlier, the chess pieces for really for the Antichrist to come on the scene, create a global conflict uh, that is ratcheted up in scale to the point uh, that everyone is sort of focused on Israel because uh, I don't know if you caught this, but when this whole conflict began, uh, Mr. Putin said, like the day before they attacked, he said, uh, we don't regard any sovereignty or recognize anything that Israel lays claim to. Basically just sort of making this statement of, we don't care about Israel and they mean nothing. Why would he say that? right before he attacks. You know, I think that was, that was probably missed in the mainstream media. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on. And I think globally things are, are shaking out. And, and if, you don't, if you're not aware of what's happening biblically, uh, read Daniel 9 through the end. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, there's sort of, certainly the book of Revelation. There's 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Uh, there's 2 Peter Three, Second Peter two and three. The, the, all these things are pointing to what's happening as we come to the time of the end of the age. Uh, the next prophetic event, as far as I know, is the rapture of the church, and then after that, as the tribulation begins, uh, this uh, man of sin, this uh, antichrist, will be manifested. He will come on the scene. He will broker peace between Israel and all of her enemies, and basically Israel and the world. Anyone who can do that, because that's never been done, uh, will basically win a Nobel Prize and become man of the year and all of that. 
And so I think all of these things could really be setting that, those events in motion, getting them ready to happen. And I think we've never been closer than we are now. So get ready. All right, with that in mind, turn to 1 Thessalonians. Wait, 1 Thessalonians, I just said 1 Thessalonians. Acts chapter 4. I don't know, maybe we should study 1 Thessalonians this morning. 1 Thessalonians, good book to read. Acts chapter 4, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse 22 this morning. As we continue sort of in the middle of the story we, we stopped in last week. So we pick it up in verse 1. <clears throat> now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many of, as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man... By what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak uh, to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of the things we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. Because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Lord, give your 
blessing to the reading of your word. This is the word of the Lord. And may it be your word to us today as we consider all that you have for us. Our hearts are open, Lord, and we are here attentive, ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I forget, the other name I just remembered was um, Mark Hitchcock. Uh, He's a pastor in Oklahoma, I believe, and a prophecy expert. So that's your last bonus of the day. All right, Peter and John before the council, before the Sanhedrin. As we were working our way through this last week in chapter 3, remember what was happening. Peter and John were going up to the temple about the hour of prayer. And as they were going in, this man who had been lame from birth and uh, was over 40 years old was in this particular spot. It was his spot by the beautiful gate leading up into the the temple courtyard. Um, And he had been there forever. He had been a fixture. Was, Was there in the days of Jesus as they, I'm sure, often walked past him going up into the temple. And on this particular day, as Peter and John are going in and they're going to be faithful uh, in, in praying about the, the, the third uh, period of the day, 3 p.m. And as they are walking in, this man speaks to them, you know, sort of chanting his mantra, whatever it might be, gets their attention. Peter looks at him intently and says, look at us. And this man turned thinking, of course, he was going to receive something from them. And he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And as he said that, he reached out his hand, grabbed the man by the hand, and basically yanked him up on his feet. And as we looked last week in the scriptures, Dr. Luke uses an amazing term to start talking about in that moment, his ankle bones and everything that was necessary for him to stand because he had never stood before, all came together. And we imagine it probably was a snap, crackle, pop pop kind of a situation as he was standing up as God, by the power of the Spirit in that moment, was, was healing that man. Just as when Jesus, remember when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, and he spoke to that man and he said, stretch out your hand. And this man uh, couldn't stretch out his hand. It was all palsied and bent, and it was in like the, this crazy claw kind of a thing. And he listened to the word of Jesus, and as Jesus spoke, and as he stretched out his hand, his hand was made whole. And the same thing happened here as these men spoke by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus reached down from heaven and healed this man. And this man began to to leap and to shout and to praise God. And as this was happening, he was clinging on to Peter and John and just praising God. A crowd uh, developed there uh, in the temple courtyard. And all of a sudden, as they came together, Peter realized God just changed their schedule. Their agenda was wiped out for the day because God changed it. And they began to speak to the people. And Peter, all of a sudden, is preaching a message kind of gives new meaning to what Paul said to Timothy when he said, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, resort. You never know when you might be called upon to give a message. And so he gave that message as the Spirit gave him power. The Spirit filled him and he spoke. And as he was speaking, and as they were having this, this revival message right there on the, in, in the Solomon's portico, uh, then we, we kind of interrupt the story as these people come, uh, the, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees come. 
And as they come, they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people. They're like, well, who are you? The only authorized teachers here are in there. And these are the people who went to university. These are the people who were approved. They're degreed. They're the people who should be teaching, not you. Who are you people? Get out of here. Beat it. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came. We find 11 uh, either groups or people who immediately came against them. So you talk about opposition. This is not just someone heckling them. 11 different entities come against them immediately saying, what is going on here? And they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see, this has become the central message of the gospel, the resurrection. This is not just the resurrection of the dead, but the resurrection out from among the dead. The Greek is very specific here. Ek nekron, out from among the dead. Jesus had died, but God raised him up. And God, in raising him up, fulfilled scripture. And we've already looked at some of the scriptures as we closed out the book of Matthew. But God raised Jesus up, and Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. If you want a commentary on the 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 concept and the idea of the resurrection, go read 1 Corinthians 15. It's the best commentary on the resurrection. And so they went and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So as they were going up about 3 p.m., this thing happened, this, this whole event. And of course, at 6 p.m., roughly speaking, they considered that to be the end of the day. And so I don't know how long it went on, but they considered it uh, too close to the end of the day to really deal with the situation. So they, they put them in custody. They arrested them. And they, they put them in some kind of, of jail or holding place. Now you say, why were they being held? What law did they break? I think one commentator sort of paraphrased why they were arrested. Here you go. We can say that they were arrested on suspicion of teaching uh, dangerous ideas such as that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he healed a man who had been crippled his entire life. This is why they were arrested. Preaching Jesus, preaching the resurrection, and then this man standing here who had been lame, whom everybody knew was lame. They'd seen him every, you know, every day for 25, 30 years or more, laying by the gate, and he's standing there. However, many, verse 4, of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. I I believe what they are saying here is not that 5,000 more believed in that moment, but we were told previously on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 had come to know Jesus. I believe he's saying here about 2,000 more came to know Christ on this day, and the number uh, came to be about 5,000 in total. Either way, it's an amazing thing. Whether 5,000 got saved or 2,000, one is important to the Lord. And so these several thousand people were saved. They believed that this, this little event happened as they were just minding their business, walking in the Spirit, going up to the temple to pray, and God redirected their path through this man who was a beggar. All of a sudden, their world had been turned upside down, not just the, the apostles, but everyone who was there in that temple courtyard who was there and they saw and experienced what had happened and they heard this message that Peter had preached. 
So it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, they were gathered together at Jerusalem. So if you count up all these groups of people, it's about 11 between groups and individuals. And when they had set them in the midst, they said, now here's their scrutiny, here's their cross-examination, by what power or by what name have you done this? Doesn't this sound absurd? This man's been healed. It was, you know, what, it would be as if he walked out of a hospital and he went in on a stretcher and he came out walking and leaping and praising God. This man had been healed dramatically. And when they had set him in the midst, they said, by what power or what name have you done this? Wow, this man is here, he's whole, he's walking. This miraculous thing's happened in his vent, and you guys are upset. Why are you upset? Because the idea behind the what power or the what name, you see, these are virtually the same because the power resided in the name. And the name carried the reputation. And so when they say by what power or by what name, already they had mentioned Jesus, they knew who Jesus was. And Peter's about to give them a dose, a heavy reminder of who Jesus was. And then in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, let's not miss that. You see, on the day of Pentecost, there was this thing called the baptism or the coming upon of the Spirit. But since then, you see, there was one baptism, but now there's many fillings. You see, God is into free refills. Not just for them, but for us also. And so, Peter was filled with the Spirit again, and God did it in that moment. Now notice, it's not saying to us, now, now Peter stopped and said, can I just have a minute? And got on his knees and prayed and said, oh Lord, would you now please fill me again with your Spirit? God just filled him with his Spirit. His heart was right. He, he was God's servant. And I think this is a great example to us that you don't always have to stop and go through a formula or get in a corner or close the door and pray a certain prayer. If our heart's right toward the Lord and we're having fellowship with, with God and we're abiding in Christ, God will fill us. God will empower us. Remember, all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what did it say as we turn back over there? He said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's happening? He's in Jerusalem. God wants him to be his witness in that moment, and God says, I'm going to fill you again with the Holy Spirit right now. And so Peter, being filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, he's before the tribunal, he's before the Sanhedrin, plus a few. These were the most influential people in all of Israel, spiritually speaking. He says, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, how did we do it? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and that had to be like nails on a chalkboard for them in that moment, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, still fresh in their minds, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. You see, you thought you killed him. No, you didn't. He's still alive. He's still doing things. 
he reached down from heaven and touched this man. And he said, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now quoting scripture to them, now indicting them. They were there to indict him. He's turning the tables on them. Now as we pause for a moment and reflect on Peter, again, this man, who was he in the Gospels? Constantly misspeaking, constantly misfiring, uh, saying the, the wrong things at the wrong time, just couldn't get it right. Now he's a man under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit. He's a man who has spent some time reading the Scriptures, and now all of a sudden, between the Spirit of God and the Word of God, he is speaking with great power and great authority. And he quotes this Scripture to them, which they knew very well, and he's saying, you are the builders. You are the ones who were here when Jesus the Messiah came, and you are the ones whom God is indicting, because he has become the chief cornerstone. And he says in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You should have that verse underlined. It should be highlighted. That's the gospel. There is salvation in, there is, nor is there salvation in any other. You see, The gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive, isn't it? There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one name under heaven and earth given among men by which we must be saved. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, Paul said this. He says, but you are washed You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The name of Jesus. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. You know, with the other religions that are out there in the world, Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed, their name means nothing. Why? Because they're they're dead. There's a grave. You can go to their grave. But there is no grave for Jesus, is there? Because he's alive. And the resurrection of Jesus out from among the dead has authenticated and verified and validated the gospel, the good news of Jesus. There's salvation only in his name. Not just his name, but there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, verse 13, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. All right, here's another verse you should have underlined or highlighted. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. We're going to talk about boldness for a bit here. And they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. That's a miracle. That these people are now, they're, they're teaching the teachers. They're preaching the scriptures to the people who should have been preaching the scriptures. They were saying that they understood the scriptures to the people who should have understood the scriptures. And it says they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, they had hung out with Jesus. They had been with him for this three or three and a half years. Uh, 
But also they spent time alone and privately with Jesus, didn't they? And what happened as a result of being in the presence of Jesus? They were changed. They were transformed. They became different people. And there's a beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's chapter 5. Verse 21 that says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, when we become Christians, when we become Christ followers, by definition, we are different. We have been changed. And I say that to point out something very specifically. If, if you sitting here today listening or, or just you know, sitting here just wondering, what does all this stuff mean? If, you, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I know Christ, I'm a Christian, then you, you need to be able to understand, you need to be able to, to discern and to look back and there should be a difference in your life. It may not be this dramatic, you know, I was a hell's angel, biker person, killing people, doing drugs, and all of a sudden one day I gave it all up and I was a Christian. Praise God, and there are testimonies like that, and that's awesome. But there should be a difference in your life and my life. When I, when I look back to the person that I was without Christ, and in that process of coming to know Christ, how did I hear the gospel? When in my heart did things change? When did I believe? There should be this, this point of turning for us. And maybe that process of sanctification has been slow and gradual. Maybe it's been rapid. But there should be a difference. And you and I should be able to look at our lives and look at the scriptures and go, there should be a difference. Just like we can see the difference in Peter here. The before and the after Peter. There should be a mark that is upon us. They had been with Jesus, being with Jesus is not just like hanging out with a friend and shooting pool or playing cards or whatever you do with your friends. This is becoming like Jesus. This is being transformed into his character and his nature. The process of sanctification is, as Paul said, becoming conformed to his image. You see, we believe in Jesus. That means our lives should be looking increasingly like the life of Jesus. And so they were uneducated in one sense, that they, like Jesus, had no formal rabbinic education according to the customs and the standards of the time, yet they were educated in two more important ways. They knew the scriptures, and they had been with Jesus. It, in the same way that we may look at this and say, you know, it may be wrong to discount them because they were, you know, untrained or uneducated men... It would also be wrong to go to the other extreme and to say that formal education disqualifies someone. It does not. Uh, Formal education does not disqualify someone for effective service because as long as we know Christ and as long as we have the Word of God and as long as we are filled with the Spirit, we are fit for His service. So this is not saying, as people have sometimes tried to do with verse 13, that, well, you have to be an untrained and an uneducated person to be used by Christ. That's not true. They, that's, that was their situation. They were untrained and uneducated men, which gave more credence to the ministry that God was using them in. Because they were uneducated and untrained, it was a sign to the people of the time that God was working and God was moving. You see, God wants to use 
any and every life, regardless of educational status, regardless of socioeconomic status. It's all, that stuff doesn't matter when it comes to serving God. God wants to save a person and change a person and use that person as his servant for his glory. All the other stuff is just extra stuff. But when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, now what is boldness? I'll give you the definition from one of the Greek dictionaries. It's a freedom in speaking. It's an unreservedness in speech. In other words, not afraid to say anything. There's an open, frank communication. There's being forthright in communication. There's a speaking forth of the truth. There's no ambiguity in what we are saying. There's uh, no hiding or shrouding the truth. It's a fearless confidence, a cheerful courage, a bold assurance that what we are saying is the truth. That's what boldness is. It's a confidence, not arrogance. There's a big difference between confidence and arrogance, right? Confidence is just being sure of, of knowing who we know and what we know. Arrogance is foolishness. Arrogance is pride. Arrogance highlights me. It highlights my knowledge. But confidence, boldness, it's about Christ. Who and what gives them the boldness and gave us the boldness? It's the word of God. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's our salvation. So it's the confidence in Jesus Christ and the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, boldness is akin to the word faith. Boldness and faith goes together. And boldness and faith are the opposite of fear. Fear and faith cannot coincide any more than fear and boldness can coincide. I may be afraid walking into a situation, but the Spirit of God and the Word of God cancel that out. I may feel fear, but I go forward in faith and I open my mouth and I speak based on what God has said in His Word. You see, the confidence comes from knowing God. Not, as long as we have confidence in ourselves, we will be fearful. I don't trust in my abilities. I trust in the ability that the Lord provides. Psalm 20, excuse me, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. See, don't fear people. Fear God. God is the judge. God is the one we serve. God is the one who gives us the boldness and the power. You see, this is what the world needs to, to see, isn't it? Bold people, confident people, followers of Jesus who are bold. I want to share some scriptures with you for a moment about the issue of boldness. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says, According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. You see, our boldness and our confidence is in Christ. That's where it is. That's where it comes from. Ephesians six nineteen, Paul says at the end of the great uh, passage on uh, armor and spiritual warfare, he says, and, and Pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. 
See, boldness is something we need. Paul said, pray for me that I would be bold. That I would rise up in that confidence which God gives. And he says, why? Because I'm an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You know, we're all ambassadors for Christ. We're told that in the book of 1 Corinthians. So as ambassadors, that means we are his representatives. In Philippians 1.14, Paul said, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What did he mean by that? Paul was writing the letter to the Philippians from prison. He was in a, a, a jail cell under house arrest in Rome. And he's saying, The brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains. Now, isn't that a weird thing? People go, You're in jail. But God's still giving you a ministry. God's giving you a platform. And I take comfort and, and, and encouragement and consolation from that. And Paul, your being in jail and God's still giving you a ministry gives me confidence, who, and I'm not in chains, to go forward with boldness. God's given you a boldness in Caesar's household. Guards are being changed every few hours. Peter, Paul's like... Okay, I haven't talked to this guy before. Hey, since you're chained to me now, he waits till he you know, conveniently locks the cuffs. And then he says, now that we're hooked up together for a few hours, let me tell you about Jesus. That was, that was his mindset. And people saw that. And they said, I'm taking confidence in that. Because you're in jail, Paul, and you're ministering in the name of Christ. You're not going, woe is me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms because I'm in jail. He said, no. I'm going to, I, look, there's people here. I can talk to them. Whoever God puts in my path, I can talk to. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be, in shame, be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. Now that's somebody who understands freedom in Christ. He's in chains, but he's like, I just want Christ to be magnified in my body. And you see, that's what happened to this lame man. Jesus healed him. Jesus was being magnified in the body of this man as he's leaping around, dancing and praising God there in the temple court, a place he had never walked on with his own feet. And now God is using him to, to proclaim the gospel, to be an example Boldness, that Christ would be magnified in our bodies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But even after we had suffered before, and we were spitefully uh, treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel in much conflict. It didn't matter that we got beaten and thrown in jail, Paul and Silas, there in Acts 16. He's saying, you know, we were bold in God to speak the gospel. And we, we spoke the gospel there, even after we were beaten. And we went to the next city, Thessalonica, and we spoke the gospel there. That was you, Thessalonians. First Timothy chapter 3, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, just serving the Lord as a deacon, as a servant, gives boldness. You see, serving provides boldness. Psalm 138, verse 3, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Where does boldness come from? From God himself. 
Proverbs 28.1, listen to this. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. This is who we are. It's who God wants us to be. Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. See, the fear of the Lord, the reverencing, the, the, the awe of God, who he is, that gives us strong confidence. And it said, of course, as getting back to our story, that they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Well, what's going on with that? Well, the scriptures have something to say about that too. In Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This isn't downplaying education, but it is saying that what truly makes us wise is the word of God. To go on, Psalm 119, verse 98 says, You, speaking to the Lord, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. So the word of God makes the the simple wise. The word of God makes me wiser than my enemies. Psalm 119 verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. God can make you wiser than your teachers through his word. Apparently so, because that's what it says. Psalm 119, verse 100, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. You see, they realized they had been with Jesus. You see, this was both past tense and present. They had been with Jesus. They saw them with Jesus in time past. He's not there physically. But what they didn't understand, what they didn't see is that they were still with Jesus, weren't they? Because Jesus said, if I go, I'll send my spirit and he'll be with you and he'll testify of me. So the spirit of God was the spirit of Christ with them. And so they were still with Jesus. It's not just that they had been with Jesus, but they they were still with Jesus. You see, there was a mark on their lives and that mark was evident to other people. They had spent time in the presence of Jesus for three and a half years but now they were daily spending time in the presence of Jesus. They were sustained by the fact that Jesus was still with them. Remember, he said to them in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those were Jesus' last words to them before he ascended into heaven. In Hebrews 13, Paul says, as he's quoting the Old Testament, excuse me, whoever wrote Hebrews Hebrews 13, he says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll always be with you. That's why we sang those songs this morning that talked about this. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? You see, they were abiding in Christ. They remembered the words that Jesus spoke to them in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. 
You see, this is what the world needs. It needs to see boldness and confidence in Christ. The world needs to see lame men made whole and walking like this man. But you know, any person who is saved and has the forgiveness of Christ and Jesus has come into their life, they are a lame person walking because sin makes us lame. The world needs to see lame men and women made whole and walking. So verse 14, coming back to Acts, seeing that the man who had been healed standing with, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Why? Because there's the evidence. They're actually using the man in their argument against them. And and they're saying, you can't say anything. He's right here. I mean, God did it, right? The man's standing right there. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, here's what they said to themselves, right? What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done. They're, They're saying, it's a miracle. We all know this guy. It's not some random dude we can't validate what happened. I mean, we know this guy. He's been laying on our doorstep for 30 years. So what should we do? We can't deny this notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to everybody who who dwells in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So what's their strategy? So that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So their strategy is ignore the miracle, just pretend like it doesn't happen. Sounds a little bit like cancel culture. And just say, we don't want you to talk about Jesus anymore. Don't mention his name. All right? You got it? That's, that's your order from us. And they called them in and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now imagine being ordered. Don't mention the name of Jesus ever again. If you do, you're in big trouble. <laughs> so they called them in. They said this. But Peter and John, still filled with the Spirit, answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. That's, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Considering who they were speaking to. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Underline verse 19 and 20. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You see, yes, they were apostles. They were first uh, century witnesses. They were generation one, right? But we may be generation 2000 or whatever we may be. But like they said, we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. You see, this tests the degree of the mark that's been left on our lives by Christ, doesn't it? Am I compelled to speak? You know, Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me or compels me. These men were constrained or compelled by the love of Christ. They said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You know, again, the Holy Spirit has empowered them. You see, you cannot silence spirit-filled men and women. Just because someone says, hey man, we don't like what you're saying, be quiet, So what? You're not God. I answer to Him. I answer to to God. I read His Word. His Word instructs me. So we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Now, Jeremiah, the prophet, 
in Jeremiah chapter 20, he went through something similar. Jeremiah was being persecuted by this man named Pasher in Jeremiah chapter 20. And in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, I want to read this to you because he said something very similar to what Peter said here in Acts 4.20. He said, O Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You were stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Jeremiah was being persecuted because of his faith. And then in verse 9, chapter, chapter 20, verse 9, he says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. He's like, I'm done. I've had it, Lord. Tired of this. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. This is a man who is constrained by the Spirit of God. I mean, he even said, I'm not talking about you anymore, Lord. I am done with this. Every time I open my mouth and speak about you, it gets me in trouble. And like Peter and John, who said, for we cannot but speak of the things we have seen and heard, Jeremiah says, his word was in my heart like a burning fire and it was shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it back and I could not. See, this is the mark of Christ upon the life of a person who is named a Christian. Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Next chapter, they're not going to be so fortunate. And finding no way of punishing them, there was no legal recourse. There was no crime they had committed. They just didn't like what they were saying. Because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Not only could they not argue with the miracle, but all the people were giving glory to God who had seen it and heard it and witnessed it. And especially those 2,000 or so who came to believe in Christ on that day. You see, when it was all over, here's what God did. 2,000 more people came to believe on Jesus in the midst of this persecution. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit again. Peter got to preach Jesus to the leaders of the Jews in addition to the people who heard the gospel and believed. Hostile examiners confirmed a miraculous healing because they said, we can't deny this miracle, right? I mean, they, they wanted to. They wanted to pretend it didn't happen, but they couldn't. The enemies of Jesus were confused. Peter and John were growing bolder for Jesus than ever before, and God was glorified. That's just a few of the things that happened on that day as Peter and John got up and said, we'll just... Here's our schedule. Here's our calendar. Three o'clock, we go pray. We go do that. Then we go and we do this. God interrupted their schedule, right? Look at all the stuff that happened. Because they were open to being led by the Spirit and directed by God. And all of a sudden, there's 2,000 more people who were in the church of Jesus Christ. For the man was over 40 years on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Verse 23, and being let go, They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they said, by the way, they warned us, so we're just passing along the message, not that we want you to listen to it, but this is what they said to us. And so when they heard that, that's these other believers who have gathered there now, they raised their voice to God with one accord. So there's unity of the Spirit right here in this little body of believers, and they said, Lord, you are God. 
who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people's plot vain things? Acts chapter 2. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done, acknowledging that God was sovereign even in the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, look on their threats. That's all they are. They're just threats. And notice the prayer. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Underline verse 29. What do you do in the face of persecution? This is what you do. You get on your knees before God and you say, Lord, grant to your servants that with all boldness that they may speak your word. We're not going to be quiet. We're not going to be silent. We're not going to wear masks and not sing. We have to proclaim the praises of God. It's interesting, this word here that they used for Lord in verse 29 is different from all the other times. This word is not the usual word kurios. It's the Greek word despots. And it's a word used of a slave owner or a ruler who has power that cannot be questioned. So as they are saying this, as they are praying, they are essentially saying, Lord, you are our master, we your servants. And so Lord, just tell us what you want us to do. But Lord, give us boldness that we may speak your word. Isn't that what we need? We need boldness to speak his word. Didn't Jesus say persecution would come? Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus is saying this is to be expected. It's a part of the package. 2 Peter 3.12, Paul, who certainly had his share of persecutions, writing to his young protege Timothy says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will have persecution. Peter, no doubt remembering this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, his epistle he wrote many years later, he said, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. That's what happens when persecution takes place. They might be blaspheming God, but God's being glorified. Why? Because God said it was going to happen. His name has been made great. You've preached the name of Jesus. And that, listen, the result of that is in God's hands, isn't it? We are, our calling is to be faithful. Leave it in God's hands. They prayed to the Lord. They did not pray for comfort or safety. They prayed for boldness. You see, we gain perspective when we realize the one upon whom we are calling for help. 
Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the person we're asking for help from. Not a friend who can help me push my car out of the road when it breaks down. The maker of heaven and earth. And he will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This is the person we're calling upon for help. Verse 30, Lord, by stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice they are not asking for glory. They're asking for God to move. And when they had prayed, verse 31, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. God likes that prayer. Pray for boldness. You see, we can never do more than pray until we have prayed. And after we have prayed, God will move. God will grant that freedom. He will grant that boldness. And they said, Lord, you stretch forth your hand to heal. They wanted the signs and wonders, but the signs and wonders were there to bring people to Christ. The signs and wonders were not being done so that people might flock to a church from all around the world and see this thing happening that people are saying is a moving of the Spirit. You see, if God's Spirit is moving, people are getting saved. The emphasis isn't on the moving of the Spirit. The emphasis is on people getting saved and people being drawn to Christ. You see, already, you know, from the very beginning, we talked about this in Acts chapter 1, as the people spoke in tongues, that what were they speaking? The excellencies, the glories of God. You see, when the Spirit of God is moving, the Spirit of God is shining the spotlight on Jesus. And, and, and Jesus, of course, said, I am here to glorify the Father. Now, verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. A Spirit-filled church is a church that, that's in unity. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. We don't all drive the same car. We don't all drive the same thing. We don't all have the same beliefs politically or whatever else that might be out there. But we do have the same belief when it comes to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. And so they were unified. They were of one heart and one soul. And neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. You know, there are people who like to, to talk about what's happening here and say this was an early form of pure communism. No, it wasn't. Communism says, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. What was happening here is that the people were saying, what I have is yours. You see, their hearts were open to share. And so many people believe that what was happening during this time, because these are the days following the Feast of Pentecost, and the Spirit of God had been poured out, and people had stayed behind, and they had not gone home is that now they're, you know, people are camping out all around the city and it's gone beyond just the days of the feast. And, and there was a need for people to, to you know, have food and shelter and, and all of that. Things were wearing out. 
And so the Spirit of God was moving upon the people, and people were looking at a need and saying, well, hey, let's go sell a couple of cows, and here's some food to help, help people get by. You see, it was, a, it was just a sharing. It was a fellowship. It was a holding all things in common. And notice in verse 33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That word great is the word mega. So let's read it back. And with mega power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and mega grace was upon them all. This is what God was doing in that day. And we long for him to do this again. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, first occurrence of Barnabas, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, so it's an island, Having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, the apostles never required this. They didn't lay down some law and said, okay, everybody, come on, give it up. Start selling your cars and your houses and your land and all that stuff. No, this was just something the Spirit was doing among the people of that time. But it was a response according to the need of the moment. And the people did this willingly and cheerfully. And when we read about giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it talks about God loving a cheerful giver. That's what these people were doing. They were just freely saying, hey man, you need something, I've got it, you can have it. They didn't care. Because what they cared about were people, what they cared about was the gospel, not their stuff. They cared about the Lord. You see, they had been with Jesus. They had a spirit-filled boldness. God was moving on their lives and through their lives, and God was using them as his witnesses. And he was doing what he said he would do, that the gospel would be preached, that persecution would happen, but they would, through that persecution, be given a platform to preach to people that they might not otherwise be able to reach. God was working. God was moving. And we need... God to work, don't we? We need God to move. We need the same spirit-filled boldness that they had. And like them, we need to be with Jesus. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've spoken to us this morning. And God, these people, your servants, they got together and they prayed and they said, Lord, stretch out your hand. Move. Fill us again with your spirit. Give us boldness that your servants may speak your word. Lord, that's our cry today. That's our desire. That's our, that's our prayer, Lord. And we know you love that kind of prayer. So, Lord, move among us today. Give us boldness. Lord, take away our fear, our inhibitions. The fear of man is a snare. But the fear of the Lord brings strength. We want to be strong in the strength of the Lord, in your mighty power. We want to put on that helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness 
shod our feet with the gospel of peace, put the sword of the Spirit in its holster, take up that shield of faith, wrap the the belt of truth around our waist, and be bold as a lion, unashamed, but willing. Lord, fill us with your Spirit afresh and anew today. Lord, for any here today who may not know you, who've never trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, this only name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. I ask that in this very moment, that that man, that woman, that child would, in their heart, bend their knee before you and say, Jesus, come in and and give this incredible gift of salvation and life to me. And and Lord, I repent, I turn, I, I come to you. Lord, save me. Fill me. I want to be your servant like these people were. I want to know this peace. I want to know this strength, this confidence. Lord, would you do that this morning for your servants here? In Jesus' name, amen.